Welcome to part two of this week's podcast. So we we know that uh, the Lord is telling Joseph Smith that there has been baptisms done in the river, right? But it's now time to have a house where the ordinances could be performed. And um, the baptisms in the river, it was not a... If you were to look at Nauvoo from 1841, when they're really into the baptisms for the dead, to Joseph's death, if you were to say what was the most consistent, almost daily experience of the saints, and it's baptisms for the dead. And what I've been, I found so fascinating, put, putting together six volumes of these baptisms for the dead, is that people knew the names of their ancestors. I found one man, uh, he did the names for 32 generations <laughs> out there in the Mississippi River. Whereas we look today, and I'm not sure that um, my grandchildren could give the full name of my mother. Do you see that? In other words, uh, they've, they've got other things going for them. But they also did baptisms work uh, for their friends as well as family. So Hiram Smith goes into the Mississippi and does the, uh, the work for Alvin Smith, his, his brother that had died back there in Palmyra. Uh, Don Carlos Smith uh, did the work for his friend, quote, George Washington, <laughs> who obviously they aren't peers, but uh, uh, the women of Nauvoo, when they wrote of Don Carlos uh, Smith, said he was the most handsome man in Nauvoo as long as he was wearing his Nauvoo Legion uniform. So uh, obviously Don Carlos Smith liked George Washington. But by section 24, the Lord is saying, I need a house. <laughs> and uh, uh, I think that uh, it's pretty interesting. There were four different architects in the town of Nauvoo, including Truman O'Angel, who uh, was the architect of the Salt Lake Temple. But Joseph didn't call on him. He called on William Weeks. And what I like about William Weeks uh, William Weeks would go down by the Mississippi River. He would see these baptisms going on, and uh, he didn't see a recorder. And uh, he, he's one of the ones that made note of that and started writing down who, who were out there doing baptisms for the dead. And so I think when Joseph asks him to be the architect, he already has a spirit of the work. It isn't just, I'm constructing another building in town. In fact, he was the architect of the Nauvoo house. You know, it's not just another building where you're going to welcome people so they can contemplate great things, but, but a building for ordinances. And so, um, but this building was going to be the most unusual building that William Weeks uh, had ever built. And by the way, I, I lived four months in his house. You know, he truly was an architect. I mean, he had four fireplaces and, you know, I'm, I'm not a decorator. I struggled decorating one, let alone four, but okay. So William Weeks, he, uh, he is told by Joseph, I want you to uh, design it, but basically according to my vision and uh, he wanted round windows <laughs> and you're like round windows. Can we do that at that time? And he wanted sunstones, star stones, moonstones. He wanted a gold weather vane on top. I mean, Joseph had very, very definite ideas. But while Weeks is working 
and uh, men are being called to be temple workers. And it's not uh, to help with ordinances inside, but to cut the limestone then from one of four quarries. We now have one quarry we call the temple quarry, but to cut the limestone and then bring it to, to Temple Square. But uh, what they did, the people were so anxious to continue baptisms for the dead that they had a wooden font built and it was brought to the main center of where, which would be the Nauvoo Temple, right? And they did, uh, they built a house over it with a pitched roof. And then you start getting stones coming to Temple Square, but try and imagine, it's the most unusual building I've ever thought of because they're building a building around a building. <laughs> and so, so you've got land that was donated by uh, Daniel H. Wells, who is not a member of the church. He gave Joseph four acres and Daniel H. Wells would go on to be in our first presidency. But you've got in the middle of what's going to be your stone building around going around the outside, you've got a building with a pitched roof and people lining up to get in to continue doing their baptisms for the dead and others working on the walls to go up. And uh, what, what I think is so interesting, uh, that you would, they would take the stones from the quarries, they would wrap rope around them, and then bring these huge, huge boulder-like stones towards Temple Square. And as they would do so, each stone became, uh, it was like a parade. There was nothing more exciting in Nauvoo than parades, you know. And uh, as the stone would come up, the farmer would come to the side of his field, put his plow down and sing the Spirit of God like as fire is burning. The young kids, they'd come out of their schoolhouses. They'd come, they'd sing, and you get to the business district. And suddenly they're, they're still singing, you know, people coming out of their shops. And then the stones would be given to stonecutters and many of them from the British Isles. And a stonecutter is different than a stonemason. I mean, a stonemason can take stones and then, you know, here's some kind of cement, another stone. But a stonecutter has to carve. And they were the ones that carved the uh, tombstones you see in the old cemeteries in Nauvoo. So as they would carve these stones, each stone was like an artistic experience. And if we had been kids back then, wouldn't that have been fun? <laughs> but we'd be able to go to the walls of the Nauvoo Temple and we'd be able to say, if our father had been a stonecutter, my dad did that stone and then look way up. He did that stone and he did that stone. And you look at the temple today and all the stones look the same. I mean, we've got such great tools, right? But back then it was huge personality. And uh, the sacrifice was amazing. At one point, um, oh, you get Brother Mace writing, uh, looking at Temple Square. He says it was like, a, you know, like a bee. It was like blackbirds were everywhere. People were everywhere. Uh, they came from every state in the Union because they wanted to build. It was the biggest building since New Orleans up and down the Mississippi River. And people without tools were never turned away. You just needed a willing heart and uh, go for it. And as they began to build, they got it up a story and a half high, almost the same size as a Nauvoo house with the building in the middle, still the pitched roof, right? <laughs> and uh, so it's after the death of Joseph 
The question was, would the church survive? And uh, people out in Philadelphia, they're wearing black armbands. In England, they're putting black claws on their sacrament tables uh, in memory of Joseph. I mean, it's just, there's a question as, will we survive? And the continuing to build that Nauvoo temple was a symbol, yes, we are surviving and the work goes forward. And when Brigham Young's now, now home and leading the church, you know, he knows as he looks over the town, he can see that Joseph wanted to have a city built on a hill. But he looks and a lot of people still living in log cabins and clapboard houses. And uh, he can see the temple is not done. So he calls the men off public works and it's build, build, build. He, he takes out the wooden font and the people literally run back to the river and keep going. <laughs> They've got uh, deceased. They, they want to be with their families forever. And uh, finally, uh, you don't get till May of 1845, the last stone goes on. But now you got to do the inside. And they only had the third floor finished when Brigham says we're, we're opening it up for endowments. Because he wants to go west, but he's not going to take a people west unless they've been endowed. So literally from uh, December to February, less than 10 weeks, you get about 5,500 Latter-day Saints receive their endowments. And suddenly it's flea Babylon. At that time, United States, 26 states, and uh, it's time to head west and fulfill the prophecy of Joseph Smith. The saints are moving out. Wow, that's so interesting to hear. I love that idea that a stone would go by and the farmers would stop and sing. And <laughs> that is, I've never heard that before. That's. Hey, you can even see that John carrying on with the Salt Lake Temple as they're coming from Little Cottonwood, you know, a lot, lot longer distance as they're coming down into the Salt Lake Valley. But that Spirit of God, I mean, from the Kirtland Temple dedication you know, all the way through to dedications now of literally hundreds of temples around the world. Spirit of God, like a fire is burning, and truly in Nauvoo it was such the case. I like what you've added, too, about Brigham Young. Um, so, so tell us again, the temple is about how far along when Brigham Young takes over, and okay, we got to finish. Was it? All right. So uh, the temple is about what they call the story and a half high. It's kind of up to the window line that you see. And uh, for Brigham, uh, he wanted that temple built. He wanted the saints to, uh, in essence, build their memories of Joseph Smith. I mean, you can look at, well, my favorite story goes, well, two stories to Wilford Woodruff. Uh, at one point, he's riding in a carriage, and he's a little bit outside of Nauvoo, and he sees uh, the John Benbow farm, obviously a more famous farm in England. But he sees Brother Benbow, and he walks out into his field, and he goes, Brother Benbow, he, uh, he goes, I don't even think the Garden of Eden could be as beautiful as I now see your farm. And Brother Benbow says, oh, thank you, Wilfred. He says, I've just dedicated it to my memory of Joseph Smith. So shop, barn, and for Wilford Woodruff, uh, people have said, oh, he only lived in his house, you know, less than a month. And uh, what was he thinking? He must have known they were going west. Uh, as he was 
Walking down uh, the stairs, he was carrying a table. There was a den in the floor. He pulled it back. He said to his wife, you have to wait. He fixed it, put the small rag rug right back over it, gets in his wagon. And she goes, what are you doing? And uh, he goes, uh, he goes, we're going. And she goes, but it's been so long. In other words, everybody else is lining up to go. And he goes, um, someday as he left the front door open, he goes, Someone may know that Wilfred Woodruff lived in this house. And he said, it's my memory of Joseph. He goes, I have to leave it perfect. And so what you've got, you not only get the building of the Nauvoo Temple, but when not building, well, Heber C. Kimball is in, is in his home 40 some odd days. And I go, did he ever plan to really live in it? And I go, oh no, it's his memory of Joseph. Much like, uh, you know, I've had, People, uh, well, you know, testimony meeting. <laughs> I go, if if we were told to do that, I mean, I'd have to buy my entire block. There would be Hertz Castle and then there would be Black's, Black's memory over here, right? Because, um, you know, they, they just wanted uh, to show the Lord their devotion. They're so appreciation to live at a time with the prophet of God. And imagine we live at the same time with the prophet of God today. I mean, how lucky couldn't we be? Yeah. And someday someone might know. Someone might want to know that Wilfred Woodruff lived here. That's that's amazing. <laughs> what what do you, when do you think that um, Brigham sensed that we're not we're not going to be staying here. We're going west. Uh, well, we know that Joseph Smith, when he's over at Montrose in August of eighteen forty two, uh, will be leaning against a building. Say to Anson Call that uh, the saints will be driven from here to the Rocky Mountains. And uh, in the Rockies, we will become a mighty people. So uh, we know that Brigham Young, he serves Mission Mission and then England. And then when he's back, uh, you see him kind of coming back and you see him side by side with Joseph really once he's back and told, you know, as we get into later sections that he doesn't have to leave his family anymore. And uh, I would assume then at their various meetings that they are talking at great length about What's what's coming up? Uh, don't you have a, an upcoming book about Joseph and Brigham and their friendship? Uh, I do. In fact, uh, it's it's already out by a oh, company called Aspen wonderful. Aspen Book. So it's Joseph and Brigham and Eternal Bond, hmm. and um, their their relationship from from day one is pretty interesting. I guess what I like about it is uh, Joseph chastised Brigham on on not just one occasion. But uh, Brigham never overstepped his bounds. I mean, Joseph was always <laughs> Joseph was always his prophet. And and how much older was Brigham than Joseph? Well, Brigham's born on June June one, eighteen o one. Okay. And Joseph then in eighteen o five in December. Okay, a few years older. I've noticed here, Susan, that they might think, well, we can just use the river, and the Lord saying. We need a house, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, some people, you know, would come and they would watch the saints. And they found it very curious. And at one point, uh, down in St. Louis, we can find a newspaper article saying that there are seven wonders of the world, but we've now seen the eighth. And it's the baptismal font. <laughs> you know, they went and were allowed to go in the clapboard house. And I think uh, sometimes... Well, it seems to me the Lord, when you're doing something sacred, um, 
you, you don't want people that can heckle, mock, and find it uh, just a mere curiosity. Um, because I know when I've done the work in the temples for my loved ones, wow, it's so sacred to me. Yeah. He says in verse 37, how can these things be acceptable unto me except you perform them in the house, which you have built in my name? He says, this is the same reason I had Moses build a tabernacle in verse 38. Uh, I want to give you these things. John, you've brought this up over and over. I want to reveal to my church, he says in verse 41, the things which have been kept hid before the foundation of the world. He says, I will show Joseph how to build this house. Let's labor with your might, he says in verse 44. And it sounds like they did. From everything you've told us, it sounds like they did labor with all their might to get this done. I, I think they did. I think they started out uh, one day in 10, where you could choose which public work you worked on. But um, by 1845, and there had been, uh, you know, we always think of Joseph and Hiram as the martyrs, right? But then you get another man uh, being killed out. And remember, we talked about these little uh, communities. And when Edmund Durfee was shot, Brigham said, everybody come in. And so you have these 23 communities in Nauvoo, like spokes of a wagon wheel. They collapse. And they all come into Nauvoo. And then the same on the Iowa side. They all come in. And that's where you get a real big population in Nauvoo. And that's when Brigham says, work on the temple. We're going west. Get it done. And you, you actually, because of the enemies, you know, you have the great quote where Brigham's saying, you know, he's going to build the temple even as the Jews of old with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. <laughs> and uh, they're pretty much at 24 hours with little fires uh, you know, uh, kind of buckets going on all side on all four corners of the temple, so people can see as they continue to build. I think people probably know Kirtland Temple restored certain things. Nauvoo Temple, we're going to get more things. Right. So in the Kirtland Temple, we know that there was washings and anointings uh, for men, and this was on the night of dedication. And then you look at Nauvoo. Nauvoo is what you'd say, you know, the fullness begins to be revealed. As you get Joseph Smith and the little red brick store there on Water Street with giving endowment sealing to couples. And then that obviously carried over into the Nauvoo Temple. Yeah, that's mentioned in verse 39. Anointings and washings and baptisms. Am I, am I correct in thinking this is the first section that mentions baptism for the dead? Right. You, you'll eventually get other sections that uh, talking about there's a need of recorder. <laughs> somebody, somebody write all this down, make sure we've got it. And then you see our great uh, organized system. I, I think one thing I liked, maybe it might be worth saying, is that when the temple is finally opened, December 10th, and it's for endowments, you'd say, who's in charge of the temple? In other words, um, Brigham passes it on, and he passes it on to the 70s. So as they went to the temple, they've got these 35 quorums of the 70s, and you'd say, you know, quorum one had this day, and they would take themselves and family members old enough to receive the endowment. And then once temple one had finished next day, here's uh, quorum two, and once you get out to 35, you're in February, and then that's when Brigham says it's time to go. Uh, the first temple recorder 
was John D. Lee, our man of uh, Mountain Meadows infamous fame. <laughs> but uh, And it's interesting. He actually built the largest house in Nauvoo in uh, memory of Joseph. It had 23 rooms. So there, there he was. So different phases of our lives, right? Um, Susan, what's the rest of the section? So it seems like the first half is about the Nauvoo Temple and the Nauvoo House. Uh, then we're kind of going person by person here. Uh, are we talking about mission calls? What you get the person by person is you start with, you are to buy stock in the Nauvoo House, right? <laughs> and you begin to name it, but then you get uh, this kind of person by person and... The one you'd probably find the most interesting is Alman W. Babbitt. And uh, Alma W. Babbitt, uh, the, the Lord is not pleased with him. And the crazy thing is Alma W. Babbitt asked Joseph, take that part about me out of the section. And Joseph said no. <laughs> but uh, the part <laughs> I think is so fascinating, Alma W. Babbitt, he's a, an attorney in five different states. So you'd say, wow, he's got a lot going for him, right? And he was a stake president in, uh, in Kirtland. And uh, so he's, he's told in that section to beware of the golden calf. Do you see it? Yeah, and, verse 84. Um, 84, but the part I think is so fascinating is on June 26th, uh, 1844, Joseph and Hiram are in Carthage jail, and Uncle John Smith, their uncle that's been a stake president in Adamon Diamond and in Zarahemla, he now goes to visit his, uh, his nephews in the jail. And he asks, what can I do to, you know, to help? And Joseph says, go tell Alma W. Babbitt who at the time was um, a branch president of a little community close to Carthage called Ramus, and to go tell Babbitt that we want to hire him uh, to defend us when we go to the to the court. And so here goes here goes Uncle John Smith, you know, riding like crazy over to this little town of Ramus. He finds Babbitt and he says to Babbitt, "I've just come from Carthage. Did you know?" Joseph and Hiram are in jail, and Babbitt says, I do. And Uncle John goes, oh, good, Joseph needs you to defend him when his case will come up. And Babbitt's comment was, <laughs> Uncle John, you're too late. I've already been hired by the other side. Ugh. And you're like, oh, <laughs> good thing it still appears in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's a beware of the golden calf. So uh, good message to all of us. Uh, make sure we're turned to Christ. We're facing the Lord. Uh, we're in the center of the church. And don't don't let that golden calf knock, knock you out. Oh, wow. <laughs> Can you believe that? I, I've already employed by the other side. Uh, tell them sorry about that. Um, yeah, there's a nice little comment in the Come Follow Me manual about the different golden calves that we might be tempted to go after. Uh, yeah. Good good thing to talk with your kids about. What's that golden calf and how can certain things or loyalties become a golden calf for us? Yeah. Right. It's anything that gets in the way, right? Ugh. It gets in the way. And then the rest of the section, it's like the reading off of the names of the leadership 
of the from the church uh, all the way down to um, the leadership of the the deacons. And it's interesting at that time you had uh, four quorums of high priests, but uh, we've only found one quorum of deacons. So by this end, there was not an age kind of thing where we think deacons now, 11-year-old and so forth. They were, they were grown men. Uh, yeah, you have a lot of names in this section. I think of reading this with my kids, they're going to say, who are all these people? <laughs> I'm gonna say, <laughs> well, they all uh, have fascinating stories, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll, say, we'll get Susan's book, Who's Who in the Doctrine and Covenants, and yeah. see, if we can, see if we can go through and find out who all these people are, learn a little bit about them. Do you know that that might be a good question to ask? Um, is is what what is the um, membership of the church at about right now? Are we at, at, at about fifteen thousand, sixteen thousand? Okay. Um, well, I actually came up with a pretty solid number, but we're we're about twenty thousand. But but what you're looking at when you look at Nauvoo, Nauvoo is a young adult church. And uh, there's a reason they call Lucy Mac Smith Mother Smith. You know, she's atypical. And Father Smith, he's atypical. So you're looking at a, a fairly young church. And, um, and you're about, about 20,000. But some, you know, there are some accounts. There could be many more because uh, those are the ones we can name. But those we can't name that are far flung, that never made it to Nauvoo. Are difficult to find. Such an interesting. I I love hearing that. I I remember as we talked about forming the first quorum of the twelve that it might have looked like a young young adult activity, except for a couple of them, and just <laughs> just that they're they're doing this for the first. They're young. It, I love that. And and what we've you know what I've found and you know if you were to say statistics, uh, there were more men in the church than women where you couldn't see that in a typical ward today, not but today, yeah. you got to, yeah, not today, but, but remember Joseph and his followers are always pushing against the West and the man goes West first. And uh, so you'd see that um, you'd see in that Joseph's church, uh, basically um, uh, coming from the British Isles ancestry, as you look, look at the group, pretty homogenous actually. Uh, not a lot of ethnic in in that original church. Yeah. Can you tell us what's going on in Kirtland? I see something about in verse 83 uh, um, about William Law. I th weren't there some that were trying to go back to Kirtland for business reasons or whatever, or trying to get others to go back to Kirtland? Right. Um, well, the same... Uh, Alma W. Babbitt, we talked about that, <laughs> you know, very excited, the golden calf. Uh, he, he will be one that will head back to Kirtland and try and stop some of these saints that were heading up to Nauvoo so they could build up another stake again in Kirtland, Ohio. And uh, for Kirtland, uh, many of the people loved Kirtland and there, there was an advantage and a, a lot of the old saints were still there like Martin Harris <laughs> And uh, and the temple was finished, but uh, the Lord and Joseph wants them to keep moving on, come to Nauvoo. I think sometimes we talk about the uh, the Kirtland period and the Nauvoo period of of church history. Is that a designation we use? And I've always thought, where do we fit Jackson County into there? Is it kind of in between, or is it is it simultaneous? Yeah. So simultaneous, I think. 
at one point, we know everyone's called to Kirtland. And then those that were called and elected to go uh, went to Jackson County. And then by 37 and going 38, Kirtland clears out of the always faithful, right? And then they join them in far west. That's where you go. And then finally, you've got a real substantial group in far west that moves to Quincy and then up to Nauvoo. Yeah. I was looking at uh, this section, Susan, and I see the name William Law, and there's such great blessings that could be coming to William Law. Verse 97, it says, If he may ask and receive blessings, let him be humble before me and be without guile. He'll receive the Spirit. And that's verse 97. It goes on to say all these wonderful things to William and there's something to be said of, you know, you, these blessings are available, but William Law is one of those who turns on Joseph Smith, uh, and all of those blessings get kind of wiped away, uh, at least for a time being, right? And I, I think something I'm going to bring up with my children is the idea of staying true through difficulty and being humble. Let him be humble before me and without guile. Great. I think you bring up a wonderful point. I think you look at William Law's mention, John C. Bennett, uh, blessings. And then I think uh, the ultimate is where Hiram Smith, as he's being told he's going to be the patriarch in essence of the church, and that he will take the place of Oliver Cowdery. And then uh, you think, <laughs> I don't mind being released from callings and someone else go in. But I don't want anyone to take my place in standing before the Lord. And uh, I, I think what we're looking at is uh, people that had talents. Uh, they were on the scene. They were making a great difference. But they failed to keep their eyes single to the glory of God. And along the way, found a reason to fall, fall away. And, and then what happens is literally, you wonder if their place, their blessings, Go to someone else, and and you do see that in the case of Oliver Cowdery and and Hiram Smith, and being told he'll he'll in essence stand next to Joseph. Hmm. Isn't it true that uh, that Brigham Young was in a place that might have been occupied by John C. Bennett? I think maybe I could say something about the Nauvoo Temple. So um, you you realize that the saints will begin heading out in February. And I think it's always interesting that the man that Brigham leaves behind is Orson Hyde. And by this point, he's dedicated uh, Jerusalem for the return of the Jews, right? And his job is to finish the temple, not just the third floor, but all of it. And so, uh, and it's interesting when the saints go to Iowa and uh, they're told to get out of there in 52. Who does Brigham leave behind? It's always Orson Hyde. But I think uh, the part that's interesting is that as the saints left Nauvoo, there was some question in town, would they return? And that was probably a good question because several of the saints, as they went over to Iowa, would find someone who had received their endowment. They would cross the river so they could get their endowment in the Nauvoo temple and then quickly run, run back, Right. And so um, in 1848, an arsonist then set fire to the inside of the temple and will weaken the walls. And then in 1850, 
there was what was called a great wind, and we might call it a tornado, but uh, a great wind comes, and three of the walls of the temple, because of the weakened inside of the temple, will literally fall, fall to the ground. And then you get, in 1865, you get the Nauvoo City Council is saying, boy, we, we got people going up there on Temple Square and uh, worried about the one wall that's still standing. Could people get hurt? Well, the result will be is they will, people will come to the square. They will take any of the stones and you can find Nauvoo Temple stones all over the town of of Nauvoo. Go down alleyways, they're everywhere, foundations, uh, wine cellars. And uh, before long, you'd say where the temple had once stood, they extended Mulholland Street, which is our main street in town. And so um, <laughs> you, you extend the block where the temple once stood, and by the time um, Wilford Wood is going to purchase much of that property, you've got two apartment houses, you got a match factory, a shoe factory, an Icarian meeting hall, and people had literally forgotten where the temple once stood. In other words, generations pass, and it's just part of the business district. But the man I think that should be featured is Brian S. Hinckley. Uh, he was a school teacher by trade, a principal, and he was called to be a mission president. And while a mission president, he went to Nauvoo, and he was curious, where, where did that temple stand? And he went to Carthage, the county, county seat, and did some research and found out where the temple stood and concluded he wanted to buy that block. But obviously his occupation indicated that he couldn't possibly do it. But lucky for him, he has a rich friend. And that's perhaps a message to all of us. <laughs> but, but his rich friend was this uh, Wilford Wood that Woods Cross, Utah, named for he was a furrier by trade, uh, and it was a time when women could wear mink coats and not get sprayed, right, with paint. And uh, it was the American dream, you know, the, the big car, the mink coat, the house. And uh, so he came back and then purchased that site in, uh, in the 1930s, and the site was given to the church but uh, with no, no plans to build a temple at that point. And it's not until the 18, 1950s you get J. Leroy Kimball comes out to Nauvoo, and J. Leroy was a famous uh, doctor in the Salt Lake area, and came, but what he really liked was reading the journals of Heber C. Kimball. You know, uh, he's a direct relative. And he read of this beautiful house he'd built in memory of Joseph and came back to Nauvoo, found uh, some walls still standing, not much. And he goes, uh, my, in essence, great-grandfather would be embarrassed, and I'm embarrassed. I'm going to rebuild it. And then finally, you get him inviting his cousin, Spencer W. Kimball, to come back. And uh, you have two great men talking about what could we do to restore Nauvoo. And much of what you see is literally the brainchild of what they were able to accomplish. But it's interesting, Spencer had the idea, since they had the Nauvoo Temple site, that they build a 
tall elevator shaft and that it would show that the elevator shaft was higher than the water tower. And you'd have some kind of widow's perch on the outside where you could look you know, across the river and everybody could ooh and ah. But obviously that didn't happen. And I'm so grateful for, uh, for President Hinckley saying, we're going to rebuild the temple. And it's just magnificent. And what a privilege for me to have served in it. <laughs> right? How great is that? Yeah. I think that uh, you might mention too, I think that when I saw it and only it was grass and some markers where the corners were, there was, uh, was it a Catholic school across the street to the west? Right. And they were very uh, gracious there was a, about it? Oh, the Catholic school, um, you know, uh, just amazing uh, women that served there. I always thought you could eat food off any floor. You know, I didn't care what floor. They just, they kept their lands immaculate. And if you go out to the Catholic cemetery in Nauvoo, you can just see cross after cross. At one point, I counted 131 of these women that had cared for their property across from the where the Nauvoo Temple once stood. And there was a, a school there or something? And that, that's, uh -huh. It was a school down. for, right, it's since been torn down. So um, uh, the church eventually acquired it. We used to hold a Joseph Smith Academy, kind of a semester abroad for students there. It's since been uh, torn down so that from the temple, you just see this grassy knoll and there's some trees now planted, but, and then you can look out over the river. Is 70s Hall original and and the the Browning store? What Which ones are original down there? Most of it is actually rebuilt. John, the, the most, the building that was in best order was the Wilford Woodruff house. And it's because, uh, he wanted to have the biggest memory of Joseph Smith. So you got John D. Lee, his 23-room house spreads out. But Wilford stuffed his walls so that the walls inside were eight bricks thick. And he counted every brick and put the nicest ones in the front. But one of the ones that we like to visit is Joseph Smith's Red Brick Store. That's uh, rebuilt from ground up. And as we, in 1980... We rebuilt the uh, the Whitmer cabin there in uh, Fayette, New York. And at the very same time, uh, the reorganized church then called that, I uh, rebuilt the red brick store. So much, much of Nauvoo is a rebuilt as opposed to, uh, to, to it still standing. Yeah. And uh, but there's good, uh, if there's I good were... cold root beer at that red brick store. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> but if I were to say, you know, let's say you go to Nauvoo and and uh, someone pretty famous said Nauvoo is like a gigantic cake. Most of it's frosting. So you could maybe, you know, if you didn't see the uh, the bakery, you'd probably be okay. But um, the the sights, the sights to see, uh, you want the temple. You want the temple for sure. And then any burial ground. And uh, uh, you couldn't always count in Nauvoo that Joseph would speak on Sundays. But invariably, he would show up at the burial grounds. And it's interesting. They would bury on um, Thursday and Monday. And Thursday is a traditional day when Moses climbed Mount Sinai. And Monday's a traditional day when he came down with the tablets. And you see Joseph in Nauvoo becoming oh, very Israelite in his thinking. 
And why you want to visit those uh, cemeteries is because in the cemeteries, he introduces much of what, to what today we know of as temple work. You know, baptisms for the dead, families can be together, uh, that kind of thing. I noticed reading this section kind of a, where was it, Hank? A restatement of the Abrahamic covenant in verse 58, you know. Uh, and as I said unto Abraham concerning the kindreds of the earth, even so I say unto my servant Joseph, in thee and in thy seed shall the kindred of the earth be blessed. So yeah, there's the evidence of that thinking of going way back to the uh, the fathers. Was was Robert D. Foster also somebody who turned against the prophet in verse one fifteen? Right, um, yeah. Robert D. Foster, he's uh, someone that owned the Mammoth Hotel, mm -hmm. which was a fifty room hotel during Joseph's lifetime. Uh, there were eleven hotels at the time, and his was the largest. But Robert Foster was one of those that turned their heel against the prophet Joseph. I guess my favorite story about him was after Joseph was martyred. Many of the saints knew of his uh, affiliation with conspirators and actually thought he had been in the mob that had killed Joseph Smith. And they wanted him to leave town. And several of the men uh, came to see him, but he refused to leave. But then there's a great story of Mary Fielding Smith uh, getting an entourage of women coming to see him and telling him if he didn't get out of town right away, they would waste him. And uh, suddenly you see him just packing up and he's gone, <laughs> never to return, although he was one of the uh, big landowners, uh, had money in town, had been successful. So... Uh, you know, the, all these men, you just wonder, they were there on the scene at the time, but how many forfeited their blessings? And uh, that's never good. If you see me doing it, you know, I've, I helped bring in the church a, a guy that uh, was a bouncer in the bar, and, you know, he'd wear wife-beater shirts even with the temple clothes, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've said to him, hey, if you hear I'm messing up, find me, and he, he's indicated he will, and you guys joined that team, right? <laughs> that, uh, you know, we got to help each other. The blessings are in the center. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a sobering section to go through so many names and to think what happened to these folks. And it's inspiring when you look at like verse 129, Heber C. Kimball, Parley Pratt, Orson Pratt, and Wilford Woodruff, some of those that were faithful to the end as well. Just stalwarts. Yeah. yeah. Susan, to finish, I want to look at section 124, of course, that's our only section today, verse 125. So 124, 125. And it says, Joseph is a presiding elder over all my church, translator, a revelator, a seer, and a prophet. You've studied his life uh, as much as anyone alive today. Joseph, his name is, is known for both good and evil all over the planet, um, and we all know what side we're on when it comes to that argument. Uh, so I think our listeners would love to hear from someone who studied him so much, uh, what you think of, of Joseph, the presiding elder, the, the uh, translator, revelator, seer, and prophet. Thanks so much for asking, Hank. Um, I know that Joseph Smith was a translator. I mean, we have such evidence. Just look at the Book of Mormon, right? Uh, prophet, seer, revelator, all of the above. I've studied the life of Joseph, um, well, you know, for 
well, as old as you can possibly get. Here I am. <laughs> and uh, I'm not bored in the process. I am very concerned of the day in which we, we live, in which um, people who have done sloppy scholarship are getting so much uh, time on the internet and space. Um, truth has to edify. And uh, what, what I'm seeing in their work, um, I'm not immune from that. There's hardly a day I don't get something that goes, really, how do you know that lady? I'm so grateful that I can turn to uh, documents, pages. I mean, it's just, just obvious that uh, Joseph is being attacked. I'm grateful that I can stand on the side to still say that he is a prophet of God. And the blessings that that has brought to, to me and to my family and to my loved ones, I will be forever grateful. Yeah, I think uh, one day, Susan, you're going to meet Joseph Smith and Emma Smith, Ooh, I hope and so. they are going to be grateful <laughs> to so. you for your work. You have you have touched thousands, thousands of lives in holding well, up look, their Look name. what you guys are doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah. I'm a pawn. You're you're big players. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we feel so uh, blessed to have had you with us uh, a third time. This was just uh, a treat. Oh, that's for us. a treat. Choose me yeah. again. It's my favorite. Yeah, we. We love having you with us. You know, uh, tell everybody to go to Nauvoo. Don't miss it. We want to thank Dr. Susan Easton Black for her time with us today. We want to thank all of you for listening. Thank you so much for being with us. We have an incredible production team and executive producers uh, that we need to thank. Stephen Shannon Sorensen. And then our production crew with David Perry and Lisa Spice and Jamie Nielsen and uh, Will Stoughton. We want to thank you uh, so much for your work and effort, our wonderful team. And we hope you'll join us on our next episode of Follow Him. Follow Him.